is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our own Alex Cortez went on a road trip to an event called Open Call, where Walmart opens their doors to over 500 entrepreneurs to come to their headquarters what they call the home office in Bentonville, Arkansas, and pitch their American-made products to get into their over 11,000 stores. It's a great democratization of the buying process for folks who may not know anyone at Walmart, and it's a part of Walmart's commitment to buy an additional $250 billion worth of American-made products in a 10-year period. And now Alex brings us this open call story. It was 10.30 a.m. and it suddenly got louder as the entrepreneurs came out of the rooms where they had their half-hour pitch meetings. And a Houstonian named Mike Watts came out and showed me the sheet that he just kissed. So yeah, we've got our, uh, our, our sheet here. We've got our sheet here. It says, yes, thank you for a great meeting. We look forward to continuing this journey. And uh, they want it. They want our product. We're going to be able to add jobs immediately in our local hometown. Today we have 32 full-time employees. Based on this meeting, we're going to be able to add more immediately. I expect it maybe about 50 employees by Christmas. So I just am so excited that, that that's 50 families, right, that are now going to have a job. I can't even express to you how excited that we are. It's a dream come true. It really is a dream come true. Mike's company, Love Handle, has a phone grip that you slip your fingers through. It is better than anything else on the market and will now be in a market called Walmart. I think I'm just going to go around here and high-five people and uh, pass out all these love handles to anybody that's willing to take them. We literally brought uh, 2,000 of them with us, and we've passed out a few hundred already. So we're going to spend the rest of the day sharing the love with everyone that's here in Bentonville. And I'm probably going to do a bunch of social media videos and just share the enthusiasm. Fixing they probably go live and uh, jump and do some backflips. I don't even know if I can do a backflip, but I'm going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I had my first job at 15 because I wanted to have some money. Yeah, you want a car? Fine. Earn some money, go buy a car. You want to go take a girl out on a date? Well, you better have some money to do it. So 15 years old, you know, I went to the mall, and uh, they just opened up a baseball card shop. I was like, man, I love baseball cards, and I love being at the mall because that's where the girls were. So I, I got my dream job there at 15, and next thing you know, I became manager. And so by the time I was 18 years old, I was running 14 employees there, all older than me hiring and firing, and uh, had a shoe store and a you know, clothing store that I was running and operating. So I learned about what it takes for people to buy, like how to sell, how to merchandise, how inventory works, what margin is, and all those things at a very early age. And I think that planted a seed in me that I wanted to be able to, to be in that space because it was so exciting. So I left corporate America when I was 30 years old. And I've been a full-time entrepreneur for the last 14 years. Uh, when I left, I had three small children at home. Nice corporate job, very comfortable, but it just wasn't for me. Uh, it was, you know, 3% raise every year, and there was a ceiling there that I couldn't break through, and I just felt like I could do more on my own. And so I want to thank my wife for believing in me from day one, the day I left my corporate job. And she's been side by side. Like, even before then, we had a side hustle going. I was selling stuff at home and garden shows every weekend, every holiday, every sick day. I was trying to make some extra money so she could stay home with the kids. 
But back then, she was traveling with me, with our first child. He would sit underneath the table all weekend in a home and garden show watching Veggie Tales on a little VCR player that we carried around. I'm dating myself with the VCR. And uh, he would sit under there and watch videos while we were up top. And the customers never knew. Like, there's tablecloth. They didn't know he was under there. And he's under there, and we're just hustling, trying to make extra money. And eventually, he couldn't travel. We had another child. And so all that leading up to the point where we're finally like, let's make a go of it. We found this patented pivot trim trimmer head and it solved another problem for weekend warriors that were cutting their grass this is a trimmer head that would fit any trimmer but the lines don't break and they last so much longer and so you know you can go out and cut your whole yard and never change the line and we're going to make a go of it with that and she's like uh, let's do it like let's put all our chips in the middle we walked away from health insurance we walked away from everything that would have possibly uh, been what traditionally called security and we went for it and it's really paid off so i encourage people to to take those risks out there that might seem like too big i'd say the biggest risk is to do nothing at all to sit complacently behind and let other people dictate what your life is and mike's business partner his old man thought the same way he had also left his job he worked in a chemical plant for years and became a piping designer and then they offered him a package out and that was i'm looking at him as a mentor he took the money that they gave him in a package, 18 months pay, and he took all that money. He bought tables, chairs, tents, and margarita machines, and he started a party rental business. And that party rental business has been in business now for over 25 years. Me and my dad, you know, side by side, right? How cool is that, that we get to partner up together? And he lets me be the boss, right? And he's the cheerleader, and, and it's a great setup. And then eventually we cashed out and took an exit from our largest distributor. But then when we sold the company, I went home, he went home. And we were kind of sad. It's like selling a child. You know, it's like, not exactly, but it, it's, it's not easy. Because you've invested so much of yourself personally into building it up. And then to give someone else the keys, and then they show you the door. It doesn't matter how, what that wire transfer looks like. It's, it's going to hurt. But it's part of the process, and I think that the best healing that can happen is to do it all over again. Like... Yeah, you can only, like, play around the house and go fishing, you know, so much, right? We love fishing, but you can only go so much before you, you're trying to figure out, like, what do we do next? And so I was on the hunt for the next new thing, and when I found this product, you know, I'm not smart enough to invent anything, right? I'm on the hunt always for great new products, and when I find one, I'll meet with the inventor and say, look, I'm a passionate marketer. I want to give your product life. I want to take it to the world to make a difference, and I'll make you a millionaire in the process. So that's what we did with this product. It was invented by John Murphy in Minnesota, and we partnered with him five years ago, and this one, we're not selling this one. So anybody out there listening, it's not for sale. Uh, this is going to be a cash cow that's going to create jobs for a long time in the future. I think Love Handle will be a story that we hear about and a household name that you're going to know for, for you know decades to come. And we've been listening to Mike Watson. He's the co-founder of Love Handle. And what a father-son relationship we're hearing. Because let's face it, this dad let his son and the mother too, go out and go be an entrepreneur and go start and build things on his own. At 15, he was, well, doing what he loved, working with, well, baseball cards and girls. And the next thing you know, by 18, he's managing employees and managing something. He's not an infant at 18. He's an adult, and the family's treating him as such. When we come back, we'll continue with Mike Watts, the story of Love Handle, and the story of Walmart and their open call here on Our American Story.
And we continue with Our American Stories and the story of Walmart's open call, where over 500 entrepreneurs pitched to get into their stores and where we met Mike Watts, who co-founded a phone grip company called Love Handle with his old man. Let's return to the story. We've invested everything we had into this idea, literally everything. We had a big exit. We pushed all our chips back in the middle on this idea because we believed in it. But did their family and friends believe that they were crazy for risking everything in the nice life that they just earned? Some did. Some did. Some some said we should just ride the wave, you know, into off into the wild sunset. But we told ourselves, we promised ourselves this time, we're like, look, it's going to be hard. There's going to be tough days, and there's been a lot of tough days, but we're going to enjoy the ride. Here's Mike on their toughest day. We uh, ordered our first batch of product from China. We had $500,000 worth of product that came in, and they had gotten cheap glue, used some cheap glue, so the product just fell apart. We had to literally, no refunds, you know, it's not like Walmart, you can't take your back with your receipt. We, we literally loaded it in a truck, took it to the dump, and had to push it half a million dollars worth of product in the dump, right out of the gate. And then we had no way to make any product. Like, we had no product to sell. It was, we had to go with no money. I, I went for no pay, with no pay, for four and a half years. Zero income. We paid all the employees, but me and my dad, we worked for free. Um, up until just very recently, I was finally able to draw a modest salary. And then I'll keep that going until there's, you know, something happens in the future. But I'm really, I'm not in it for the money. Like when I'm in it to try to make the most out of my life. Like I feel like I have a purpose in my life to uh, to motivate other people to to find their uh, dreams and to achieve those dreams. So maybe by hearing my story, someone else says, "You know what? I'm going to try that. I'm going to. If he can do it, anybody can do it." And that's true. Perseverance, positive perseverance, is is what it takes. You have to be willing to get yourself back up quickly dust yourself off, and then find a new path. And ultimately, it's the best thing that could have happened to us because it forced me to say, I'm going to find a way to make this in America. And so now our product is top quality. It'll always be top quality. Everything's made in-house, 100%. So we can still make it at a cost that's almost exactly the same of what we can make in China. And even though uh, the product that we would get out of China would be far inferior We've actually had to go in and design our own elastic, the weave and the components. We had to design it from the bottom up to be for this purpose only because we're carrying around $1,000 phones. And I'm telling my customers, you can trust this thing because you can. Uh, the adhesive is the top grade. The elastic is the top grade. The welding process that we do to, to, to put them together is tested and it's top class. So like, it's a really, really high quality product. For that toughest day and all days, Mike has a source of strength that's beyond anything that he could muster. God's opened up so many doors for us, time and time again. We've and, and, and He's closed doors that that we thought should be open, right? And we didn't have, we don't have control of this whole thing, right? I'm just trying to do the best I can. He's the CEO. I'm the janitor. Everybody knows me as the janitor at work, right? Because I want to be a servant leader. I really do, and learn from the way that he led. And so we very much believe that he has a purpose with this company and that he is going to grow us in ways that it's going to 
glorify Him. And so having that sort of long-term faith takes a lot of pressure off of me, right? Because now if we succeed or we fail, you know, in quotes, uh, it's not on me. It's, it's Him, right? So I'm just trying to do the best I can to lean in and step forward into the dark room and do the hard work and then try to hopefully see some results uh, before I check out. One of those doors opened had Shark Tank's Damon John walking through it. He reached out to me. I was a dream of mine to be on Shark Tank, right? Like, big Shark Tank fan. I've seen every episode. Uh, we auditioned twice and made it to the second round both times, but never actually got to go on set. He was starting to use our product and fell in love with it, just like all our customers do, and was ordering it on our website. But that, you know, I think the lesson here is that as an entrepreneur, like I was, that was a late night. Everyone else had gone home. I'm sitting there looking through one order at a time, just seeing who's who's ordering, what are they ordering, like trying to understand our customers. And then I see that, and it said the Shark Group, which is his branding company in New York City. And I, I knew who they were. I was like, that's Damon's company. I was like, oh my goodness. So there's a phone number. I was like, call, get Simone. Simone works for Damon, build a relationship with her, send a bunch of product, print some with his new book title on it, with the Shark Group on it, you know, and then now I'm impressing him. And next thing you know, the phone rings. He gives us a call. He's like, look, I don't do this. I don't need to do this. I don't have, I got people bringing me products all day long. Your product is that good. We got to work something out. I was like, great. So we'll put it back and forth. I didn't, I didn't just jump at it, um, which I think, again, earned some respect from him because, you know, he's, we're like cut out of the same cloth. He's a, just a straight, 100% pure thoroughbred entrepreneur. And so am I. And so we've got to got that common ground for us. And so he, uh, we worked out a deal that made sense. So now it's a DMD products. Dave's my dad, right? He's the patriarch. Uh, I'm Mike. And then we got Damon John. So uh, we call him Uncle D, Uncle Damon. Uh, but yeah, so it gave me access to his whole team. Uh, I was actually supposed to be on the set of Shark Tank on Monday, uh, just backstage. Like, so that was my dream to get on Shark Tank. He was going to let me like come backstage and hang out with Lori and Mark Cuban and Mr. Wonderful and, and all that stuff. But the, the, my flight got canceled, so I didn't get to go. But I still, again, I think there's a better plan. Maybe I'm going to be a shark one day. You never know. But first, Mike had to pitch to get into this big place called Walmart. We're prepared. We came in prepared. We've been practicing. They gave us some information about make sure you're storytelling, right? Tell them a story. And so we really refined that going into it. I wanted them to tell them a story about the inventory that we had to push and why we make our products in America, right? And I wanted to tell them a story about how I made a deal with Damon John from Shark Tank and how he's a business partner of mine now. And uh, we had a video clip from Damon that, that we played in there addressed to them, right? So we came out guns a blazing, man. I want to genuinely say that this has been an amazing experience. From the moment we arrived at the airport here, the, the greeting that we were given and the fact that they genuinely care about American jobs. Like, it's not lip service here. They really care. And for them to uh, invite us up and to create an environment where we can show, you know, our little American-made product to them, and then now they're going to be able to give us hope to where we're going to be able to share that product and passion that we have with everyone. It's, it's just been amazing. They're a genuine partner. They're honest. They're just, I'm so excited to, to work with them. They're, they're the dream retailer. And Mike also has a dream employee named Scott, who was standing next to him. Well, Scott's great. You know, Scott uh, has been with us now for four months and is doing a killer job. Uh, if it wasn't for Scott, we wouldn't be here today. That's the short story. 
He, he went and he uh, proactively, I didn't ask him to, proactively submitted for us to go on open call. And so he took that initiative, which was huge, and because we would literally would not be here today, right? This, this whole thing. Good job, right? And he's constantly, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? He's the last one to leave with me at night. And it's, you know, having people like that on the team that feel as much like it's their business, even though he's only been here for four months, you know, it's invaluable. So, you know, to entrepreneurs out there, like, find people with that passion. Like, you can teach everything else, but if, if you can find people with passion and drive and a little bit of wit about them to find their way, then, then you're going to be successful. But you can't have Scott. He's mine. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been listening to Mike Watts, who's the co-founder of Love Handle, and what a story he had to tell about his life, about service, and about his father, and about Walmart. I mean, the remarkable thing, the story that's not told about Walmart, we know that they deliver lower prices and save people lots of money. And we know that they employ, well, over a million people, the largest employer in America. And they've raised the minimum wage without the government forcing them to. They just did it. And companies do this, folks, because they want to keep their people. But the biggest thing we didn't know was what we learned from Mike about the fact that if Walmart gives Love Handle, his company, an order, Love Handle gets to, well, employ more people. And so that's the downstream employment from our big American companies that nobody talks about. And this is where Walmart becomes a great, great corporate citizen. And by the way, we also got to hear Mike talk about service and being a good servant. In the end, that's what free market capitalism does. If you don't like the restaurant, if they don't serve you well, you leave. You get to vote with your feet and your wallet. And it's what makes, well, it's what makes this country great. The story of Walmart's open call and the story of Mike Watts, the co-founder of Love Handle, here on Our American Stories. And by the way, we're always looking for your stories about entrepreneurship and about free markets and about, well, your business story, if you have one, or a friend or a relative or just someone in town who runs a great store. All these stories, quintessential American stories, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now we bring you a story about Black Button Distillery in Rochester, New York, and what they're doing to help their community in the midst of the coronavirus epidemic here in this country. Here's Robbie with the story. Black Button Distillery was just about to go national, as Bobby Romano, their national sales manager, explains. Uh, so we self-distribute inside of New York State. We were really at the precipice of starting to get out. We were already in Massachusetts and New Jersey, but I had to get us prepared and ready to go for Texas and Colorado, and then right after that, Florida and California, and then after that, Maryland and Michigan, and I was actually in Dallas. COVID. Coronavirus. COVID-19. COVID-19. 
I was supposed to have the uh, the general sales meeting to kind of do the launch uh, with the distributor on Friday. While we were at lunch, I got a phone call telling me and the brand administrator that the, everything's canceled. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we thought of you first because you flew in all the way from New York. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> That, that was supposed to be my next, you know, four or five weeks ahead of me. You know, I basically, my trip got cut short and, you know, we were kind of like wondering what the heck was going on. <laughs> so, um, so we went from le legitimately like getting ready uh, to get to the, like the really heartbreaking part of a marathon uh, and really ramping up and moving. Uh, and then it was just like everything was cut out from underneath us. It's what we had spent months and, you know, and in Jason's case, years building up to. But thankfully, founder Jason Barrett was able to prepare for what was to come. I mean, I think I may have been more aware of it than most. I say that only because I'm a little bit of a news junkie. And then being an Eagle Scout who is always very prepared, but also very, try to be very rational. You know, on the, on the early side of this, we started to make subtle changes that were important. We put off um, by a couple weeks some of our key deliveries. We had a little bit of time to, to start thinking through it. And one of the reasons that's important is because on the production side, all of our work goes through a three-week cycle because the machine, I mean, the, the fermenters are alive. They have yeast in them that have to be tended. They have to have the right pH. They have to have the right temperatures. And not doing that for a day pretty much ruins three weeks worth of work. We were starting to get nervous that we might get um, told to stay away. And that's why when the governor called for businesses to voluntarily close, we decided not to wait any longer than that and immediately started to prepare the plant for shutdown because even, you know, you know if I make a decision today, I, I still usually need four to 10 days to safely de-escalate my production. Or you just, or I guess the worst case is you just pump the fermenters out into the spent grain tank and you're just out all of that money. Stephanie Barrett, along with being Jason's wife, is the HR director at Black Button, and certainly had her hands full amidst everything happening. So I'm getting multiple emails each day about government updates. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, it's it's a full-time job just to read all of these articles. <laughs> this is this is insane. Yeah, it was it was just a down week. We had no idea what was going on. We you know little to no information as to what we could do. Um, and uh, just trying to figure it out. Uh, and, then, uh, and then Jason started sending these emails and started giving, uh, all of a sudden I started getting these calls and he'd be like, hey Bobby, what do you think if we do this? <laughs> and um, I, I am not a stranger to that. No, Jason kind of is, is known for, uh, at least to me, known for uh, throwing out these crazy ideas. And so I kind of was like, okay, okay, Jason, we can look at that, you know, like, yeah, what do you need me to do, you know? Uh, and that's, uh, and I feel like that's the thing that the entire company, um, you know, everybody kind of said, you know, what can we do? 
And according to Kerry Ryby, veteran advertiser and Black Button's marketing director, this turn to the unusual saved their business. I, I don't think we had a choice in doing something different. If we didn't do this, I don't think our company would survive. I think it goes back to, you know, a lot of small companies, if they don't change tact, if they don't change direction, when you have something like this, you're, you're not going to survive. Um, and I, you know, Jason has an amazing survival instinct. He has amazing vision and forethought of the what ifs uh, that could happen in this world. So on Sunday the 15th, it will be a day that lives in infamy <laughs> at this point. <laughs> I remember Jason being on the phone from like mid-morning, 11 a.m. Everything was operating pretty normally with, you know, a few restrictions, like the sales reps wouldn't be going to accounts. They would just be telephoning it all in to four hours later closing the plant. And three hours from then, he's like, yep, we're making hand sanitizer. <laughs> like, what just happened? <laughs> You know, you spend 12 hours on the phone. I have whiplash. I don't know how to track what just happened today. The FDA came out with uh, their temporary guidance on the production of ethanol-based hand sanitizer, which was Monday or Tuesday of the week where we were in the process of shutting down. I, I honestly don't remember whether I looked it up or whether somebody sent it to me, but once I read this 11-page document, it was clear to me that we were uniquely qualified to meet this need in that we already have the equipment, we already have um, staff that's trained to handle ethanol, and we, we literally had tank, you know, we, we had tanks of ethanol in our storage rooms that were being prepared for making gin this summer. So even if other supply chains took several weeks to ramp up, I mean, we, we conceptualized this and delivered the first order in three days. And that was only possible because we had many of the supplies already on hand. And then we ramped up to full production about a week after that. So, you know, at first the discussions were just about, hey, you know, we're ramping down some of the day-to-day -day production, but we're gonna fill the time with maintenance work. Uh, so, you know, there's no changes. And then once we thought we were closing, we were telling them, hey, you know, we've got a normal schedule this week, but there's no work after Friday, and we don't know for how long, and you know, we were getting them information on unemployment benefits. And then by, before that ever actually happened, the production guys were back at work on the hand sanitizer. They're now working overtime, and actually just yesterday, we announced to the rest of our staff that we're calling all of our full-timers and a good portion of our part-timers back um, to be meeting this demand. We have four bottling lines running right now, two shifts a day, which is just not something we've ever conceived of prior to this. And you're listening to Jason Barrett, the founder of Black Button Distillery. And when we come back more on how the team there and again, think about what they were making every day, and it was lots of booze, and how they changed their operation over the course of only three days to go from making 1,000 bottles of whiskey a day 
to 10,000 bottles of hand sanitizers a day. And by the way, this is what's happening all over the country, our private sector, moving on the dime quickly to make the things the country needs. And by the way, that was the story in World War II we bumped into again and again, that arsenal of democracy, those big motor plants turned into factories that made the planes and the cars, the steel plants. And when America gets into a war of any kind, whether it's a foreign enemy or a disease, watch out, because that can-do spirit, well, it's always at work here in this great country. I loved hearing those words, what do you need me to do? Reporting for duty, sir. When we come back, the story of Black Button Distillery, here on Our American Story. with the story of Black Button Distillery here on Our American Stories and what they're doing to help their community during the COVID-19 outbreak. We've heard from Jason Barrett, the founder, Stephanie, his wife, and HR manager, Bobby Romano, their national sales manager, and Carrie Ryby, the marketing director. All of them telling us just how they made the transition and, more importantly, about the lives they've touched. Here's Jason to tell us more about how they overhauled their production plan in a mere 72 hours to produce tens of thousands of bottles of much-needed hand sanitizer a week just to meet a need they saw in their community and in their own company. So luckily there are a lot of similarities. So for instance, for packaging. The very first three days, we packaged in our normal glass bottles. So our bottling line did not require any changes. But it became clear that the hospitals didn't want it in glass for fear of it slipping out of somebody's hand and breaking. The bottle we chose is a 24-ounce plastic bottle, whereas our normal glass is a 25-ounce, which meant that the, the changes to the machinery were minimal. We usually only have two bottling lines in the building. We have a, a big one that runs a thousand bottles an hour and a little one that runs 200 bottles an hour. And since we couldn't convert the big one, the stuff we're dealing with is just too aggressive on the rubber. Um, it would blow, it would ruin the seals and possibly cause a fire. Uh, we have to be using the manual ones. And so then it was starting to call around you know, to the other distillers that we know and beg, borrow, trade, even buy other pieces of equipment that they either might not be using a lot or are will were willing to part with. The water for all of this has to be sterile. We have a, a big reverse osmosis water plant, but it's only scaled to make a thousand bottles a day, not 10,000. And so literally we had to, we are now running a shuttle service between us and Genesee Brewing Company where we're getting sterile water from them as one of our components. So the ability to, you know, connect with others and put together this supply chain, you know, it, it's all, a lot of it's based on personal relationships that, again, that we've built over seven years. Um, I'm, I'm going to owe a lot of people some 
pretty big drinks and or like barrels of bourbon when this is all said and done because I think I called in just about every favor I've accumulated over the last seven years to do this. Yeah, everybody's been very happy to help and we've had a great outpouring of support from the community. You know, other businesses offering to help, trucking companies that are, you know, willing to move freight for us for free. Um, you know, we, we've, there's been a great outpouring of support because I do think people in Western New York want to step up and help their community. The effort Jason has put forth to help both his employees and the community hasn't gone unnoticed, especially to Stephanie, Bobby, and Carrie, who are in regular communication with him. Ever since that Sunday morning, like he's, he's pretty much been on the phone since, trying to make this happen, trying to make sure we have all the supplies we need, trying to figure out what's best for the employees, how we can still pay them and make sure they feel secure and safe. So it's, it's very much been a whirlwind. It is not lost on us at all that every single order that we take in, every single you know, person we, we get to take a pallet to help somebody out, yeah, is it helping them out? Yeah, sure it is, but it's also keeping our entire production team employed. You know, I think the hardest day for anybody who runs a business is when they have to lay people off because they can't control something. It was not an easy day for Jason. I mean, we were talking to him and a normally upbeat person was not sounding very upbeat in our conversations that we were having with him. And I think once he had the idea in his head of what we could do, it started giving us a lot more energy to do what we were doing because not only were we keeping our community safe, but we were also keeping a business safe. And, and ultimately that is the health of the community too, in some respects. You know, it was really hard to tell these guys that I've worked side by side with some of them for five years that I didn't have work for them next week. And several of them told me that, you know, that they did not have personal reserves to fall back on. That, you know, if, if they don't work, they'll miss rent and they won't eat. And knowing that unemployment might help them limp along, but you know, it, it's gonna have real personal consequences to them. And many of them, again, are working overtime at this point where hopefully they are able to put something aside. You know, these guys are family and I'll move heaven and earth to get them the hours so that I can pay them and keep them working. A couple of his employees all at the same time <laughs> sent him an email saying, we don't want to come to work with the current situation. There aren't really protective measures. We feel like we're being exposed. And it, it feels like you don't care what happens to us. And I know that really hit home. That, that really hurt. And for the first week that we were producing the hand sanitizer, I was monitoring the email account where all the requests were coming in. So I know Jason is seeing this huge need in the community, and he doesn't want to sacrifice his people for the community, but at the same time, he doesn't want to fail the community, essentially. So he's, he's seeing this need. He is advocating for his people, but his people don't necessarily see that because it's all happening behind the scenes because he's not physically at the plant. <laughs> it's, it's 
exhausting. <laughs> it's training. I know Jason called one of our marketing people at like 10 o'clock last night because of a website thing. <laughs> We're all kind of workaholics, <laughs> but we, we all know that behaving in a way that will benefit the company, we will also benefit. It will trickle back down to us, even if that just means keeping our jobs through this time, because <laughs> that's, that's kind of big. Uh, and so Jason's like, well, uh, we need somebody to figure out the, the incoming emails. If you email that now, it's coming to me. <laughs> I called it an infinite inbox. You would answer uh, eight to 10, and then all of a sudden you'd look up and there were eight to 10 more uh, uh, new messages that just came in. So, um, you know, we just kind of worked through it and, and we, we really tried to, uh, as a team together, make sure that we got an answer to everybody. You definitely see the best and worst of humanity during times of crisis. So you see all the panic buyers and the people who are just licking deodorant in the store. It's like, oh my gosh. But then you see the people who are really stepping up. You know, they're helping their neighbors. You know, teachers are now being acknowledged for everything that they do and stay-at-home parents are now being acknowledged for everything they do because athletes and celebrities are not actively working at the moment. So we're starting to pay attention to the everyday heroes, which I think is amazing. The biggest connection throughout all the emails is that 98 or 99% of them start out with, thank you for what you're doing. We, this is amazing that you guys were able to change and pivot so quickly um, and uh, you know, the, the second thing that comes is, uh, I know the hospitals and first responders come first. You know, th there's just been a lot of good coming in. Um, a lot of thankfulness, a lot of um, understanding. Uh, my neighbor, actually, uh, a neighbor of mine, two houses down, both of them are doctors. Actually, one at each of the major hospitals here. And um, I got a text from them and said, you know, you know, thank you, Black Button, for what you guys are doing. And it was just, it's just nice to, to see, you know, I, I don't think we need to be overly applauded for what we're doing, you know, like we're, we're trying to survive in a lot of ways, um, but it's really great to see that people are thankful. I was talking to some other CEOs this morning. Some of them were asking about my life personally. You know, my wife is, is due in August. Um, we're expecting our, a baby girl in August. And so yesterday we got to go and hear the heartbeat. And many of the CEOs I was talking to this morning pointed out how that was very refreshing for them, which I thought was kind of funny. I was like, guys, it's my daughter, not, you know, you weren't there. But their point being that, that life is going on and, you know, and people are, you know, getting married and having babies and raising their kids. And, you know, and, and as crazy as all of this is, we will get to a new normal. I don't know that the world will ever be like it was before this exactly, but as a society, we will adapt and we will go on and we will find new ways to celebrate those special moments, even if it's now doing it all over Zoom and Skype, etc. And you've just been listening to Jason Barrett, the founder of Black Button Distillery, and his whole team, which includes his wife, and my goodness, so many small businesses or family businesses 
Extend that into the community and it's a bunch more families. And my goodness, necessity is the mother of invention and how quickly this team turned on a dime, not only to do good for the outside world, but to do good for their own people. Keep them working. Keep the business alive. Keeping the business safe, which cuts to the health of a community too, we heard from Carrie. And it's so true. These small businesses are the lifeblood of towns. They pay for the firemen. They pay for the teachers. And without them, oh my goodness. A great coronavirus story. We need more of them, folks. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories every day. Tell the story of the good and decent things happening all around us in our great country. Black Button Distillery Story. A story about Rochester, New York, here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories and John Clausen's story of his father's super-secret double life as a nuclear missile savant. And this is back when that really mattered, folks, around, before, and just after the Manhattan Project and right into the Cold War. Let's return to John and more of his father's story. So once my father is correcting textbooks, the teacher, the basketball coach as well, mails the textbook back to the publisher because my father took the textbook where they said he missed two questions and my father told the teacher the textbook is wrong. And my father that night when he took the teacher's textbook home, not only corrected the, the questions which were in the back of the textbook, he corrected the entire textbook and rewrote it how it should read. So when they were scouring the country looking for the top scientists in America, they noted MIT, Yale, Harvard, Caltech, UC Berkeley. That's when they said to them, you might want to check out this young kid in Iowa. His name's Wallace Clausen, but there's one thing about him. He's 17, I think. And they kind of shrugged it off initially, but the publisher said, you probably should go see him because he's already correcting our astrophysics textbooks. So my dad went to this small rural country school that incorporated all the grades in basically a classroom, rural, rural Kyron, Iowa. And my dad was on the basketball team and that week, of practice back in February of 1940, he received a letter from the National Academy of Sciences thinking, we'd like to talk to you about your math skills. Well, my dad thought he was being recruited to go to college. Well, he had no idea it was the NDRC coming after him. So he asked the coach if he could have a half hour because He's being recruited to maybe go to college. And he knew the tough environment my dad grew up with, with his dad being a drunk, a very abusive uh, father. He goes, Wally, you can have a half hour. He was in basketball outfit. He pulled on his pants over, but he left his, sh his basketball shirt on and a light coat. And it was very cold. He ran all the way 
to the cafe and there's the three G-men and they must have looked at this young kid and say, you're Wallace Clausen? And my dad goes, yeah. And they sat down with my father and they said, if you take more than two hours to correct this question, we're not interested. And now my father's thinking, I've only got like 20 minutes left now. I got to get out of here because it's going to be 10 minutes to run back. And the two of the gentlemen went to the restroom and my father just sits down, instantaneously rewrites this very long protracted math question and then rewrites it saying that this should be the way it should be written. It's not so cumbersome. It's not so complex. Always make math very logical. He never liked to see people use math to intimidate anybody. So he had ran, started running back, and that's when the two gentlemen came back out and sat down at the table and said, what do we do, scare the punk kid off? And the gentleman who saw what my dad had done said, we don't know who should be more scared, him or us. So the NDRC was in such a panic and in a hurry, they infiltrated 18 high-profile scientific universities and they acted all like graduate students or young professors, but they were all doing research work for the NDRC. But of one of those committees, there was a one called the Uranium Committee. They determined that the making of an, ex they call it then a super explosive, was not all that far fetched. It looks like it can be done and we're recommending that we go to the next phase. So what FDR did, he split the NDRC Uranium Committee off into its own group called the S-1 Committee. And uh, my father went with the radar down to Jacksonville, Florida, where all these radar, microwave radar sets were attached during World War II. That's where they perfected the microwave radar. They call it the biggest unsung hero of World War II because if the U-boats were not uh, captured correctly and eliminated, 40 to 50% of all shipping lanes across the Atlantic were being taken out, sunk. Well, within three years, three and a half years, if you wanted to be in a U-boat, you were putting your life <laughs> at severe risk of being killed. So when the microwave was done, he was brought in to help design the first thermonuclear computer with a gentleman who was considered the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, uh, John von Neumann, who was quite an interesting character in himself uh, with his office directly across the hallway for Albert Einstein. And that was the connection of my father getting to know Albert across the hallway from his closest mentor because John von Neumann uh, had developed the first programmable computer program, which was unheard of back in the early 50s. And my father was exposed to the mechanical machine at Iowa State while doing radar projects from the name of John Altasanoff, who was considered to be the first person to manufacture a computer. So they combined the computer of Altasanoff with my father and the program from John von Neumann, and hence you end up with the IBM 704 computer, which was brought out 
to Livermore, California from Poughkeepsie, New York. And as my father told me, it took three 18-wheelers to transport that machine. And he says, John, you have no idea of the security around that convoy. But uh, it's important for everyone to realize that during the 50s, that was the 7 Series computers tweaked. And then the IBM had a, a natural ability then to tweak it again so it could be commercialized and sell it. And that's when the 7 Series IBM computers turned into the 360, which was one of IBM's most successful commercial machines ever built. Now, let's explain this. When the atomic bomb was dropped in 1945, that was what you call a fission bomb. It splits the atom. That was Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Well, they found out mathematically, which are incredibly complex calculations, that if you take the heat energy of a fission bomb, which is what was dropped at Nagasaki, fission, and if you take that million degree heat and you specifically direct it at hydrogen atoms, you vaporize off the one electron, and now what you do, you try to implode billions of hydrogen atoms, which is basically considered like the center of the sun. So if you have them implode on each other, the energy release is the energy of the sun. So that's what my father specialized in. Then in 46, the government wanted my father to do advanced ballistic calculations under the guise of being an engineering student. The first thing I did, I pulled his grades from Iowa State. There my father is, he's flunking nine classes, nine. He flunked basic math 101. So they made him look like he was the flunky. So he's now at uh, University of Minnesota. All of a sudden, the, the government started a long four-year process to figure out if there were moles within our nuclear and scientific world. And we know that in Los Alamos that they caught uh, a group of the engineers selling secrets to the Russians. So they come to my father and they tell him, Wallace, we're thinking they're going to be coming after you now. And we think there could be a mole within your group. And you're listening to John Clausen telling the story of his dad. And that would be Wallace Clausen. And his super secret double life as a nuclear missile savant. And my goodness, what's remarkable about this story is that the dad had never shared his story with his own son. It was a cancer diagnosis that made it happen. And of course, what a better way to tell a son, the story of your life than while building a fence. When we come back, we continue the story of John Clausen's father here on Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here, from arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Our next story comes to us from John Clausen in the Seattle area, where we're heard on Megatalk KITZ 1400. Here's John to introduce himself and then share his story. Hello, audience. Uh, This is John Clausen, the author of Missile Man, and it's the story about my father as a Cold War engineer who lived a secret life for over 40 years. And once he was diagnosed with cancer and he was told he had 18 months to live, I got a phone call from him that he wanted to come out to New Jersey where it helped me select a home and build a fence. I picked him up in Philadelphia at airport and if you know 95, it's south of Philadelphia. And as usual, he was casually dressed and my mom is an avid knitter. I refer to it in the book as a Mr. Rogers knitted sweater. And with a piece of luggage, we drove up 95 to go back up to New Jersey. Just north of the airport, there's an exit called Broad Street. And my father said, John, 10 men sat down in the basement of a YMCA and decided how nuclear weaponry was going to be deployed and missiles. And he started naming off names, and one was Enrique Fermi, which I recognized immediately. But I didn't recognize the other names, and he was looking quite pensive, kind of looking down the street. And he, he gets to the ninth person, and he could not remember his name. And he goes, and he was a guy from Georgia. And I said to my dad, if you can't remember number nine, you're sure is not going to remember number 10. And to my amazement, he goes, it's your father. It took me by such surprise that I almost went off the road, hitting the white knobs on the highway, And I kept driving. I said, Dad, what would you be doing at a meeting like that? He goes, Johnny, I got something to tell you for the next three and a half days. So the next morning, we got out uh, to start the fence. He'd already told me what uh, materials to buy. And he just started telling me what happened in his life and how he got recruited into the top secret Uh, NDRC. Very few people have heard of the NDRC, the National Defense Research Committee, which is the precursor, actually two committees before the Manhattan Project. Now let's just go back to the beginning of in the 40s, 3940, now having received a letter from the National Academy of Sciences, where my father is thinking that he's being recruited for college because he has been correcting math books. Now, let's talk about him correcting textbooks. In eighth grade, my father is told that he's missed two questions in an eighth grade math test. Now, a year and a half before, he was in a very violent car accident where he was thrown from the car after church when a drunk T-boned their car they were driving on a gravel road in Chiron, Iowa. 
My father went flying. They had to look for him in the cornfield where he was. He was unconscious and with this gigantic scar on his face, they brought him back to the house and the only dressing on his face was the drunk driver's t-shirt and they just assumed my dad was gonna die. Uh, they didn't even bother going to see a doctor. My grandfather just said, I'm not wasting any money. Well, there is no money. And my dad's in a coma and his mom was very devout Christian. She locks herself in a prayer closet and she prays nonstop. Now this accident happened Sunday, let's say noon. He wakes up on Tuesday morning and he takes the t-shirt off his face and that gash is fully healed. My father kept that open the way it was because he always wanted to remind himself that God kept him alive and now he realizes that he's given him a mathematical and mechanical skill set that is not normal, that he's alive for a purpose. He shortly realized thereafter that not only was he a mathematical savant, that things just naturally came to his brain now, that he was also a mechanical savant. Now, it's very, very, very rare to see a theoretical and a mechanical savant kind of combined in one package. We've been emailing with the world's leading expert. He's a doctor out of the University of Wisconsin. He's the world's leading expert on savants, and he's only met 16 called post-birth savants. But what's so rare with my father, it's mechanical and theoretical. Albert Einstein while he might have been a theoretical genius, he wasn't mechanical at all. He had a hard time even tying his shoes and how to do that. He can do all the theoretical codes of nuclear reactions along with how to fly a missile. Usually those are two completely separate uh, skill sets. So my father is basically a one-man shop for a nuclear or ballistic missile, which is extremely rare. And you're listening to John Clausen, and he's the author of Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, and his father's secret, super secret double life as a nuclear missile savant is what this story is about, and so much more. When we come back, more of John Clausen's father's story. And he listens in Seattle, where we're heard on Megatalk KITZ 1400, here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here on Our American Stories with the life of Wallace Clausen, as told by his son, John Clausen, author of the book, Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, and soon to be a movie. There are producers attached to this as we speak, and of course, screenwriters. But now, let's return to the story. We last heard that the Russians were coming after John's father, Wallace. Here's John with what happened next. We want you now to go to Iowa and act like you're going to be a farmer and we're going to isolate you and living with uh, your father-in-law at the farm in Kyron, Iowa and tell everybody you're now going to be a farmer. So he did that, and but he wasn't done working. They did the drops at the windmill of scientific papers where he would go pick them up early in the morning, take them back to the farmhouse. He'd crawl up into the attic and do the mathematical calculations, put them back in the bag, and then he'd put a light on up in the attic to notify his handlers that I've got a fresh drop of research papers I've developed. But what my father failed to recognize is that my grandfather was up at 4 a.m. every day, and my grandfather could see that his new son-in-law was leaving at 4.30 in the morning and come back in like 10 minutes, So he watched this go on and on, and he watched how the light would go on and off, and in certain times when the light was on, he'd leave that day. So when they were in the kitchen, my grandfather approached my dad. He was in World War I, and I have uh, framed at my home here the letter he wrote to his father about how horrible the conditions were in France in World War I and that he learned to sleep with rats crawling on his face. And that backs up his statement, I know what a rat smells like and I think I've got one in my family. And my father very calmly responded saying, you know, Alvin, you fought for this country in a certain way. I'm just doing it in a different way. And my grandfather backed off. Never a word was ever said about anything. So after about a year of doing that is when IBM came a knocking. And that's when my father was brought into the commercial world of IBM, still doing a lot of government projects, but under the guise of IBM's, back then it was called the Military Products Group. So when we were doing the interviewing of my mom and we went to my mom with my writer and researcher, where we asked my mom, didn't you think Wallace had kind of a strange career path? He's getting an engineering degree, now says he wants to be a farmer, and now gets hired by the IBM Military Products Group. What kind of career path is that? And we got the biggest chuckle out of that because my mom said this, oh, Wallace would have been such a good farmer. She still thought about my dad being a farmer. It was very touching. Well, then the the life all of a sudden changed when Russia shot off Sputnik up into the sky and they went to get my dad out of bed. Uh, We had four kids sleeping in a two bedroom house. My mom and dad had one and we had four kids in the other. And my brother is seven years older than me He remembers that 
I was holding on to my dad's leg because I was sleeping usually on the floor with my blanket. And when my dad went to leave, I grabbed onto his leg and my brother woke up, who would have been 10 at the time. And my brother vividly sees four large-statured men with rifles getting my father and shuttling him off. And what they were doing, they were going to be analyzing the track data of the satellite as it went. And my dad said to everybody, oh, calm down. So my dad put those calculations in. But we, a month later, shot our first satellite off. We thought we were going to be first. We weren't. But that's when President Eisenhower initiated the program of NASA. So the exact month NASA was formed, we moved down to Long Beach, California, where my father is involved in IBM's what they call Space Systems West Division on on very unique address called Wilshire Boulevard. From there... In 1962, we moved up to San Jose, California. One thing that's important to note that whenever you have a person who even has a group that knows the actual ballistic codes that can activate a variety of different either ballistic missiles or missiles in wherever, you always have to be able to find where that person is. So in the early 60s, the military had developed GPS guidance systems with satellites. We had it installed, my dad did, in the back of the Austin Healy Sprite. So twice there was a time in which the government was following that Sprite in San Francisco being driven by my brother, and my brother runs out of gas they realized that the Sprite wasn't moving along the side of a highway in San Francisco. A military truck pulls up next to my brother and says, we think you need some gas. And they fill him up. And off he went. My brother was thinking, man, that's strange. And then another time, the Sprite was actually stolen. And my brother was directed not to call the police, call dad if, that, if you don't know where that car is. And they just went and got the car and brought it back. So, and then there was a war called the Six Day War when uh, Egypt basically led an attack of a coalition of countries in the Middle East against Israel. And Russia was so frustrated with America that we helped Israel out so much in the Six-Day War. And what does uh, Russia do? They move in 15,000 advisors into Egypt and 600 SAM sites. Those are surface-to-air missiles. So lo and behold, guess who moves to Switzerland in 1970? My father moves to Switzerland, and this is how he told this to the family. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said it in a very plain, calm voice. And I'm going, where in the heck is Switzerland? He goes, the Shah of Iran wants me to assist on building a water dam project. And I'm thinking, whoa, what does my dad know about water dams? And 
the week before we moved to Switzerland, the PLO had hijacked an airplane at a Zurich and they blew it up. My father absolutely freaked. He was thinking the PLO has infiltrated the network of his program and he thought they were maybe coming after not only him, but his family. At San Francisco, uh, we flew first class, it was a 747, and my father later told me that the whole front row of coach were armed guards for security. We landed, we got off, we're going through a pack of customs, we're in customs lines, and all of a sudden I see my dad in a window and he's saying, come over here. A door opened up and we just walked out. And you're listening to John Clausen telling the story of his father slash engineer, Wallace Clausen, but not just any engineer, folks. This is the story of John's father's secret life as a Cold War engineer, a super secret double life as a nuclear missile savant. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story. The book is Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen. The storyteller is John Clausen. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Turn to John Clausen's story about his father Wallace here on Our American Stories. We left off with John and his family having just landed at Zurich Airport in Switzerland. We were out of that airport in under 30 seconds because my father didn't know if, if they were going to attack now at the Zurich Airport where they hijacked the plane the previous week. And we got in the car and we drove to Tullville, which is where we lived in our house. That had to be a good 15, 20 miles. We had to go through at least 40 stoplights. We didn't hit one red light. And my father said we were in a convoy of three cars and the first car controlled the lights of the street. And uh, my father, when he was telling me his story as to what we did when we lived overseas, he says, Johnny, look at your passport. You never ever entered the country of Switzerland. I go, I got a high school diploma from Switzerland. And he looked at me with his hands in concrete, looked straight up at me and said, Johnny, we can make anything disappear. What my dad was, had done, he had put ballistic missiles in Iran in case Russia came in to attack Israel. I think it's important to do in telling you the story with my father is some of his idiosyncrasies and things he liked to do because obviously he could not have traditional friends because he couldn't trust anybody for obvious reasons. If you know the nuclear codes, you're not going to be hanging out with somebody. But what my dad liked to do, though, he loved to hit uh, fly balls to my friends because he always thought the kids could be trusted. 
So we often did that, and my father would always carry a plastic satchel. This is in the early, mid-70s. And he says, Johnny, open up. I want to show you something that we're developing. And in it was a 12-inch by 2 by 2 it looked like a, a, a white piece of chalk, but it virtually weighed nothing. And I go, what? Like styrofoam, but it was denser than styrofoam. And I, I go to dad, he goes, what do you want me to see? He goes, Johnny, I just want to show you what the world's greatest hot plate looks like. Now, that was the sample piece of the space shuttle tiles as you re-enter Earth's atmosphere, there's incredible amounts of mass heat developed as you enter atmosphere again. And that two inch thick, they ended up painting it with a different color that even absorbed more heat as it came in. But that was one of the original space sh shuttle tiles that was being developed. And my father often would say, Johnny, inquire about whose TV's working and not working. And, um, you know, I have kind of a propensity of fixing television sets. I kind of get a kick out of it. And the only thing he ever asked once in a while would be like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and he'd completely tear apart the back of the TV set and fix their color TV with ever bringing out a manual or anything. He just went in there and he'd go, Johnny, go into my tube wall Go two, row two down, bucket three over, and I need two of those. Or go down four, four over, I need one of those. And I'd run back, and uh, I would, he would take them, and he'd, he had carried his soldering iron with him, and he'd fix tubes. And those tubes which he was using were what you call G-force rated. In other words, they were used in missiles, and... You can just imagine if you have a tube machine and the G-forces in a missile, if those tubes aren't reinforced with special strong connection tips and glass, they'll break apart. And those were all G-force rated for missiles. So when my father died, I gosh, I can't believe I actually did this. We took all of his tubes and took them to the uh, dump. And I've later found out that on an average, those tubes were probably worth 200 grand today. My father always said this, Sunday is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I woke up every Sunday and he was always playing church music. And he was always asking me, who can we pick up to fill our car to go to Sunday school with? He goes, Johnny, get up and get your friends here. Uh, we'll wait for him at the train station or whatever. But the Sunday, he felt comfortable. Uh, he even was kept a smile on his face. He never really lingered around. But he always, that was his time to unwind and appreciate that he'd been kept alive and that he now knows what his mission in life is, is to try to keep the world safe. And then in 1982, my father is sent to England 
where under Carter's administration, they were quietly, secretly going to be bringing in missiles into England. And then NATO says to Russia, in an exercise only, we are going to attack you. And it's generally going to increase over the 10 days. And the last three days is going to climax with a nuclear exchange of weapons. So their hair is up and they're watching all the computer codes. And my father is in the exercise, making sure that none of the codes are in launch mode, but have all been deactivated. And there's thousands of missiles. Can you imagine thinking, oh, did I forget about that missile in Turkey? So for three days, Russia goes to DEFCOM 2. DEFCOM 2, we have never been at before with an enemy. They are expecting nuclear war, 8, 9, and 10, 1983. And we have no idea that Russia's even this mad. Soon after that exercise ended, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And basically, he retired from IBM uh, and came back uh, to California. But when he found out that he had 18 months to live, he wanted to at least leave some sort of mark that to his family that he did exist in a different way than being a quote-unquote IBM sales-affiliated guy. So when we were coming back to return the post hole digger, my father said, Johnny, pull in here. I want you to see this house. And it was John von Neumann's house where the top scientists were deciding what we were going to do with nuclear activity. Now, the bomb had been dropped. Now, top scientists, Fermi, Oppenheimer, they wanted to put the genie back in the bottle. They figured, you know what? This is a horrible thing we've done. You can go on YouTube and see Oppenheimer openly crying of the technology that they've released to the world. But my father was in the camp that said, you know what? The genie's out of the bottle. We can't put it back in, but you know what we can do? A scientist can stay so far ahead of the military in uniqueness that we'll control it. There's no doubt that my father was a walking savant, met mechanical and theoretical, but he did not give off any of that aura. He just did it and quietly walked away. And his skill sets was so far advanced, he was probably 25 to 28 years before Bill Gates even talking about programs. But he, I look at it this way. Once you're in the inner sanctum of top secret computer projects, you're not going to be openly now working on commercial projects. It's just not going to happen. So, so he came back uh, to Seattle uh, after... Uh, in uh, 1989, and he really got sick in a very quick way. And he passed away in May of 1991. And I'll never forget, he was at a hospice center. And 
I basically said goodbye and I said, I said goodbye and he said he learned so much from me and I was thinking what could you possibly learn from me? And he said he learned about life. And I left, and he died that night after my mom and, and uh, two sisters sang hymns. And you've been listening to John Clausen choking up, talking about his father and his father's passing. And my goodness, what a story. A car accident nearly kills him as a boy. He's in a coma and miraculously comes out. He thanks God for it and pledges to do something special with his life. And my goodness, he does. By the way, he was in the graduating class of six in Kyron, Iowa. He missed questions on purpose. So his girlfriend at the time, Marilyn, would be valedictorian. Marilyn would become his bride. And by the way, she didn't ask questions. She trusted him, and she was wise to do so. And my goodness, what a life story. And you can learn more by buying the book Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen. And it's the story of the super secret double life of John's father, Wallace. Their story, a great family story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.